Welcome to Sports, Clips, and Politics with your host, Ben Husong, and me, Sean Hannon. Welcome to episode 14 of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Mr. Hughesong, thank you for joining us as well. It's a pleasure, as always. Love thank it. you, everybody. Uh, how was your weekend, your extended holiday Labor Day weekend? Anything good and juicy? I mean, just a lot of labor. That's it. Uh, did some projects around the house. Uh, did some work. Had a little bit of time to relax. It was actually the first weekend in probably seven weeks that we had nothing going on. Oh. So Th- we, Those are valuable weekends, too, because nothing is... Uh, there's value in nothing, doing nothing anyway. So. All day Saturday, was my wife and I looking at each other going, what should we be doing? Where, where are we going? Nothing? We're just going to sit here? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. How about you? How was your weekend? Uh, I had a little shindig. That went well. Um, nice. Uh, I did some working over the weekend, so I did actually do some laboring. Um, but it was always a good weekend if you get through it. And here I are on a, uh, a short week, a Tuesday. Usually we're here on a Monday, but today we're here on a Tuesday. Um we get to talk about our first North American champion, Team Solo Mid, Ben Husong. They won the LCS Summer Championship here in the League of Legends eSports. So I know you've been keenly aware of the eSports championship going on here. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys know, the, the LCS, which is the uh, League of Legends uh, video game, sure. uh, basically kept me um, kept my DraftKings itch scratched during all the sports shutdown because that was the only game in town was this uh, eSports thing. So okay. this became my team. Really? Only because it was my son's team. So I basically, ad- I he, you know, I did the same thing to him at Steelers and Yankees when he sure. was two. I sure. morphed him into what he is. Now he has morphed me back into a team solo mid guy. Uh, so congratulations to TSM uh, for their win over, uh, I think it was FlyQuest, and they get to go on to the Worlds Love in September. Guys. Right, yeah. So um, also... Dustin Johnson, FedEx Tour Championship, held on. He was the, uh, you know, if you guys know how they do this scoring here, the um, the PGA during their, their championship, they have uh, points total throughout the year. And then in the final tournament of the year, they remove the points and just assign a shot total to the, rank, the, the top 30 players who are qualifying. So mm-hmm. Dustin Johnson started at minus 10. Uh, the bottom five guys were at even, so the whole field was between 10 shots. Uh, they kind of rank them out because minus 10. I think Rom was two shots back at second, then everybody else is one shot back and so forth. So, um, But Dustin Johnson held on. I think he uh, won by two strokes over uh, Justin Thomas and maybe Xander Schauffele as well. Nice. Uh, but congratulations on Dustin Johnson for also being crowned the first North American champion this weekend, I guess. So we have two. Um, very exciting time for sports, I guess. We at least to get to, uh, uh, I don't know, congratulate some teams for uh, play on the field. So that's Agreed. always fun. Or behind the computer, video game console. It's not a uh, field. Yeah, what well, so it, they they have their own and weird restrictions too. So they normally have like in-stadium events where everybody's there together and gotcha. they're watching them play, but they're not doing that. They're doing all their participation remotely. So I guess, yeah, oh, so, no, fans in there, no fans for them either. So I want to make a joke about how that's just business as usual, but I, it seems too <laughs> obvious. Right. I'll take it up with my kid. I, I I guess this is a thing, and I guess this is the official 
reckoning that I'm having that I am old. Listen, oh, I'm old too because <laughs> I it was no on, sense. The, the 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 games were always on DraftKings. I and actually just for the it's League of Legends. So in the in the in the lobby pool it says LOL. So I just thought it was a joke the whole time. I was like, what is this? It's LOL. Awesome. Like, I don't even know what this is, but. Anyway, it's League of Legends. So sure. when everything else was shut down, there was only one tab. There was LOL. And then I was like, wait, I think my son knows something about this. And then, uh, yeah, the rest is history. There it so is. here we are. That's why we're talking about esports. And now I know about it, too. clicks and politics. <laughs> What's the game they play? Uh, League of Legends. That's a game. That's the game, yes. Is it a, like a war game? Is it a soccer uh, it game? It is a team by team versus team uh, video game where they, are, they have... Um, I don't know what the right terminology is, but tasks that they need to accomplish through this battle, and then they have to basically capture the other team's tower, if you will. So there's two competing sides. There's uh, things within the game field that they have to play, and they battle it out during that, and then eventually like to... uh, You can get killed, but then you always get to come back to life, and kind of that kind of stuff. So like I don't know all the other stuff. Listen, I was just looking at numbers. So it's like capture the flag for people who can't run. Uh, Sure. Okay. It's, it's, or choose it's an elaborate version of Capture the Flag for sure. Capture the Tower, my bad. Yes, right. God, I'm old. Um, but, you know, hey, here, here we are. You know, that uh, Will Smith had it right back in the 80s and 90s. Parents just don't understand. We no, don't get this stuff. No, no, they never will. I'm at a loss. Um, we also have some uh, uh, other real, if you will, uh, North American sports going on. Uh, the NBA is in round two. Um, it. I think there's the Celtics and the Heat, which is kind of the surprising uh, news right now of round two. They are up 3-1 on the Bucks, uh, the number one seed Bucks, and uh, the Heat are up 3-1, and the Celtics are up 3-2 over the Toronto Raptors. Those are two teams that are on the verge of making the conference finals. Yep. Um, and the other side, they're not as far advanced along into their series. Uh, it's 1-1 Houston and Lakers, and uh, the Clippers lead 2-1 over Denver. So, um, those series are still a few games away. We have uh, a couple of elimination games possible for the uh, number one seed there and the number two seed, I think, actually. I think the Bucks might be. But yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll keep moving there as we get closer to the conference finals. The games are definitely getting a little closer, a little bit more competitive, and a little bit more uh, fun to watch. So um, also, more sports this week. We get week one of the NFL. Um, are you ready for some football? I'm so excited to talk about a sport I know something about. (laughs) I can't even express to you. Like, I'm so excited because I actually know some things about uh, this game. Are you ready for some football? I am ready for some football, yes. So we get a Thursday game. Yep. Uh, the Super Bowl champion Chiefs, correct, and the uh, Houston Texans. So I don't know. I don't have any hot takes for the game one or any week one really hot takes, but I'm excited that NFL is back. Uh, do you think they'll get through the season? I do. I think that they're going to get through it fine. I Yes, you're going to have some tests that come back positive. You've already had an issue with false positives all the way along. But it's not going to be enough to derail the league. I mean, even if you put the science aside of of the testing and all that, just think of the money that that you'd be leaving on the table. Players, owners, commissioner, sponsors, everybody. I mean, local economies. we are in a bubble here in New York State, so we think everybody's acting like we are. They're not. Most states are not close to this, as shut down as we are. So I think that I'm excited. I think they do get through the season. I think, yeah, you'll have some hiccups and you'll have a press. Uh, the, these football sports reporters love sounding like they know what they're talking about when they don't have a clue. So they'll hype it up like, oh, my God, Roger Goodell is the devil. How can he make these athletes play with these conditions? And you'll be like, yep, they're good. 
Yeah. I, like I said, I, I think I tend to agree with you that there have, I mean, there may be some, you know, cases. If sure. you want to count cases as whatever they kind of count cases as. Um, the only vulnerable people are going to be the coaches. I don't feel like any of the, the players are, are vulnerable. Um, yes, may they get sick, sure. Um, obviously, the coaches are a much more vulnerable uh, age set anyway, if you will. Right. So um, I, I think they get through the season. I'm excited to watch some football. Um, How know, do you feel Steelers about the Steelers fan. this year? I, you know, they get Big Ben back this week, this year, so he was out most of last year. And he doesn't look homeless anymore. That's a big win. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he likes to grow the beard out, so it'll start. I think it starts in week one and just grows out through the season. So uh, he'll be Grizzly Adams by week ten. He's like a poor man's Ryan Fitzpatrick. <laughs> yes. Um, but so they play the Giants on Monday night, so I get to wait an extra day for uh, for the Steelers Steelers game. But uh, what about the Bills? I I like them. I, it's a, a lot of hype behind the Bills this I year. No, it's an unusual position to be is it, in. Is it still the Patriots division to lose, or is it the Bills division to lose this year? So I think it's a little more of a coin toss because if you're going to go off of history, you got to go with the Patriots. However, but history has clearly been on the side of Brady Belichick, right? Correct. So like that is not the same equation. I, so is history still intact, or I don't is, think so? I mean, I know Cam Newton's a very talented football player. He's a great quarterback. I'm not trying to take anything away from the guy, but he ain't Tom Brady. There's only one Tom Brady, right? And and for him to leave, the idea that there wouldn't be any ripple effect to that and the Patriots are going to just not miss a beat after losing the best quarterback to ever play football after 18 seasons or whatever the heck he was in in New England for, destroying Buffalo. I can't imagine you're not having a setback. People don't – I mean, think about the numbers of how many times – there was something like 50% of the seasons he played in New England, they went to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, this is unfathomable. I've long conceded that he's the best ever. Um, I don't like admitting it. But, no, but it's no, true. No, right. So I, I tried to hold on to my Montana, my Montana as right. long as I could for the sake of my rookie card. But um, here Smart. we are. Yeah, here but, we are. Uh, he's he's the best. Um, it's interesting not only what happens in the AFC East with the Bills and the Patriots and whatnot there in that division because of the reshuffling, and you know I, I don't want to dismiss the Jets too. I mean, I, they have a young quarterback, and I, I think this is a quarterback league, and if you can nail the quarterback, if you get it right, yeah, you can go places. So, I'm like, dismiss the Jets now. Okay, that's fine. I am. Like I said, I, I, I have yet to be uh, convinced or denied of uh, uh, his talent yet. So, anyway. He's a very talented hap- quarterback. But what happens to the Bucks? right? So, like, does yeah. Brady and uh, Gronk, can't dismiss Gronk, go into the Bucks as well. Mm-hmm. They have a arsenal of offensive weapons, especially at wide receivers. So are the Bucks a Super Bowl contender with the best quarterback of all time, even yes. though he's 100 and whatever years old? I mean, yes. Okay. It's the short answer. I yes, think yes they, they, they are absolutely a contender because it's not just Tom Brady. It's Does it check all the boxes? Quarterback, check. Head coach, check. Talent, offensive line, all that. All check out, yes. Is their defense going to be otherworldly good? No. But are they going to be pretty solid? Yeah, they're not terrible. So you put all these things together. You have a very talented head coach in Bruce Arians. You have the best quarterback ever. You have Michael Evans, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski, Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones. Uh, you have all of these guys that have so much talent. Uh, who are they playing Tight end, Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, and like I said, they have uh, O.J. Howard and Cameron Brait are also a tight end, so they don't have to run Gronk out there in in you know running downs and uh, you know 
They can bring him out there in, the in important only. downs. Right. They can let him be an offensive threat where they need to make big plays, big big third down plays, right. uh, in the red zone, scoring plays, whatnot. They can let him be that guy there and have not much of a drop-off as far as athleticism and capability with those other two tight ends. So I, I do think that they're one of the, the, the favorites. I agree. Um, I don't expect Rob Gronkowski to be Rob Gronkowski of old. However... There's a lot of room between Rob Gronkowski of old and still top three tight end in the NFL now. No doubt. Like we, I said, and obviously you can't dismiss it. They already have a rapport, right? So, like, right. They, 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 I'm guessing that they have a couple uh, sandlot plays that they've drawn out in a couple sandboxes back for at the sure. bar on cocktail napkins or whatever. It's like, hey, this is plan, you know, bar play number three or whatever. <laughs> we're going to run it and we're going to score, and they do like it every it. single time. So, um, I'm guessing that is going to help. I, I, it's super fascinating just to see because there's always kind of been this long discussion of um, Brady or Belichick, who's more influential on the Patriots' success, who's been more Brady. of a of a you know a, a, a reason why they won, and I don't know if there's ever a way to really measure it. Um, you know, I, is- I like to be on the side of the players on the the field determine the outcomes of games. I clearly have to recognize that his success has been long term. Um, that being said, he wasn't as successful as he was in Cleveland, right, before he got to New England. So there's some right. comparison sake there. Um, but this will be Brady's comparison, right? So we get to see if he can actually succeed right. without Belichick and vice versa. Um, I'm interested to see how it plays out. I'm interested in the NFL just to make, you know, just to try to see how the season's going to unfold. Um, it's good to have sports back so that you can talk about things. And obviously we get all fantasy that goes along with it and all the other stuff. So it's, it's an exciting time. Yes. Uh, seemingly a long time coming. Um, and all these things are kind of coming together. We didn't even touch on baseball and they're coming on to the end of their 60 game season. So it seems like we're going to have some kind of a culmination of, uh, all these professional sports, at least. Yeah. Um, I still waiting to kind of fear feel and I don't know, I fear that the college sports are going to be less successful in trying to get through this. Um, but I'm super excited about professional sports. Like I said, the NFL, NBA, MLB are all are, are going to be going at the same time. Um, what do you think happens with college sports? If, I mean, if I could paint a scenario where I would be the most elated, it would be some kind of destruction of the NCAA. So these conferences would kind of realign themselves <laughs> outside of their, their, you know, fair, their rule, if you will. And some of these schools, even remove from the conferences if need be and become individual entities. Um, I know there's been some rumblings in the, uh, with the big 10 where they're trying to get uh, enough teams to basically, I don't know if secede is the right word. I like to use it because I like that word, but um, secede from their conference and kind of create their own little mini conference so that they can actually play because the big 10 has basically said, we're not going to play this year. So um, I don't know. Um, I think that they try to start for sure. Sure. Uh, you know, we saw just, and this is not a, a sports-related thing, but we saw what happened here recently in SUNY Oneana where they had uh, a flare-up of uh, positive tests, and they shut down the campus and sent everybody home. Um, I could see that happening on some of these bigger college campuses with football yeah. specifically, and we'll see what happens with basketball. That being said, I don't know that they would necessarily send the athletes home too, right? They could keep the athletes there sure. on campus isolate them in a way to protect them, protect everybody in that, on those teams, send the rest of campus home, still participate in the games. And, you know, in a sense, it would almost paint a safer picture for the teams without having the intermingling of additional thousands of students. So 
I think they start. Um, with it, whether or not they finish, I, I'm less than, than sure. I gotcha. I mean, I think that they will ultimately get to finish. It's I I think that if you start really breaking down the threat, it's not the threat to perfectly healthy 19-year-old to 21-year-old college athletes. Like you are you're trying to protect them from something that is such a small threat to them that it pales in comparison to binge drinking, the flu, regular male 19-year-old stupidity. Like all of these things are a far greater health and life risk to these college athletes than COVID-19. Coaches in a little different ballpark, but there's measures you could take. Um, I also think that as more information comes to light on the testing that we've been doing and how faulty it actually is, that has to play a role. Like it's not nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is definitely, I mean, we talk about that when we get a little bit into the COVID about the sensitivity of the testing because right. it seems to be, you know, it's not, an issue. Sure. For sure. And I think people that want to gloss over it because it, it doesn't favor their argument or it does is it doesn't matter. It, it still matters. Yeah. The question is, how much? It's not whether or not. It right. We're using the information to make decisions, right. so we should get the. We should be evaluating that information. God forbid for sure. we have accurate information and just some semblance of, hey, look, all right, let's say you shut down college football for whatever stupid reason, because there's a lot of cases in 19 year olds who are testing positive and then never having a symptom. Great. So now, what are you doing with these athletes? Are you sending them all back to their hometown? Are you sending them away from the college campus where many of these kids have? first-rate health care at their college. They have trainers and doctors on standby to help take care of them. They have a schedule. They have all these things that are good for them. And not all of them have the best situations at home. Not all, not all of these kids who made it to college D1 football are going home to a nice, cushy situation where they will be very safe and protected. Yeah. So I, I always worry about unintended consequences. What are we doing? Yeah. And it I don't know. At this point, it's just confusing. And and it seems the people that are in favor of shut it all down, protect everybody from COVID, just have some acknowledgement of the cost, that it's not as simple as, well, we shut it all down and everybody's safe. No. No, you did untold harm to millions of people that you're not even acknowledging. And then everybody else who's saying, well, wait a minute, no, that doesn't make sense. We're the bad guys. I don't know how we got here. This seems strange. Yeah, well, like I said, and and obviously it's going to get magnified, this whole discussion, through professional sports because it's going to be on a national level. Um, If one of these teams has a, you know, an increased number of uh, players who test positive, then I could see there being some, you know, media sensation behind that to try to create, uh, you know, some kind of a a feeling of uncertainty. But um, as you point out, like these teams pay some of the best doctors in the world to be part of their staffs. I mean, these players are in um, college and pro have some of the best rate medical attention that they could possibly get. And to send them back away from that seems a little bit counterproductive. So, um, and also they're 19 year old college. Right. Athletes. I mean, like sure. they're the healthiest 19 year olds on the planet. Let's, let's start with that. Right. And like I said, I think the, I mean, I don't hear a lot of, I mean, even though if they could test positive, I think that's where the sensation would be. It's the coaches is the concern, right? Like I, I don't have right. any, r- barely any concern for the players. Like they, they, if they're already have a health condition, they're probably not playing football. So my guess is that the majority of any kind of serious infection from this through sports would happen at the coaching level because of yeah. the age target of the virus. So 
that's where I would put the precautions. That's where I would, if I was a coach who was older or had some of these conditions, I would be taking the precautions or sure. putting myself in position. If it, if that means coaching from the, you know, nice. a, a, up, up top, um, staying away from the players certain way, I mean, you can do it. So, or you cannot do it and stay home and, and figure that out too, or, or participate in another way. Um, the coaches seem to be the vulnerable group in sports sure. at, at all, because again, you're, you're dealing with some of the best, you know, physically athletic people in the world and probably healthy. So they're, they're very rarely going to be affected um, so negatively that their lives are affected by this virus. So it's the coaches that I have any kind of concern for. Um, and again, there's precautions to protect them from, um, from I just want to see, I just, you know, sports is such a major part of our society as a, as a release from some of the nonsense that the fact that this is becoming part of the nonsense is, somewhat disheartening. So hopefully sports can get through this. Yeah. They can play games. They, you know, we can start talking about stuff on the field as opposed to stuff that's happening in some kind of, you know, mass testing facility for these guys. So I'm excited to have football back. I root for college football to, to happen. I'm, I'm skeptical that they get through a whole year because of, I feel like sensationalism more than anything else. Um, it's just a kind of a state of where we are within this whole state of the virus. Well, it's, it's also a kind of a matter of, the law of large numbers. So it's not that I want to be dismissive of the threat of COVID-19. It's that as human beings, we die. It's, it's sort of a design flaw, I guess, but you got to take that up with God. It's a little above my pay grade. I wasn't consulted in the design that every year there's stuff that does kill people, whether it's the flu, suicides, depression, overdose, uh, general accidental bad behavior, cancer. There's a, there's a heart disease, heart attack, stroke. There's all of these things that, that kill people. So I, if, if you look at it, you never cancel a season because of it. You've never even talked about it, even though it might be a, a greater risk to these people than COVID-19 is. But we've never considered it because those aren't new and there's nothing sensational about them. We just know that that's what it is. So I, I think as you're, you're going into this, it's a you're, you're trying to protect against COVID because it's always on your mind. But there's, such, there's so many other things that are of greater threat to these players and even the coaches that... My fear is the law of large numbers is across baseball, football, basketball, golf, college football, college basketball, League of Legends or whatever, across all of these things, is is there going to be someone who probably dies of COVID? Yes, there probably is. I, it, just the law of large numbers would tell you that that's hundreds of thousands of people, not necessarily an athlete in the game, but somebody related, a scout. Sure an internal personnel guy, somebody like that, that's going to get sick and or pass away. And this is sort of the morbid side of things of that happens every year, but we don't talk about it. Now that it's COVID, we're going to talk about it. And it's going to become a central issue and it's going to become this main thing. And I find that sports writers, especially football writers, are just the worst people. Basically, they make their entire living because the NFL is the juggernaut that it is. And they spend their entire careers bashing everything the NFL does as if they're a bunch of idiots. Like the, this is the organization that puts food on your table. And at every turn, all you can think is these guys are idiots. And I can't believe how stupid they are and being so cavalier. Well, they're in the, they're in the tear it down stage. You know, yeah. media likes to build people up and tear them down. They built up the NFL or they think they did anyway. And now they're trying to tear it down either way, whatever happens. Let's shift Corona talk away from sports. Unless you have something else you would like to uh, touch upon. Um, I think I've done most of that, but let's talk uh, just New York in general. So we've been a month, 
well, over a month of under 1% infection rate. Um, testing numbers are, you know, through the roof. They're, they're, they're testing as many people as they possibly can. Um, the infection rate stays below 1%. I, we have, as we referenced earlier, you know, campuses, SUNY campuses, which is the State University of New York, so state-run campuses, uh, SUNY Oneana, opening classes, mm-hmm. two students, in-person classes. They had a, a, a what they call an outbreak. They had a, a, a number of dozens of cases of, or what they call cases, of po- test, positive tests for this virus amongst the on the campus, and they shut down campus in-person learning and send everybody home. So even though we're having these, what, again, what we talked about with uh, County Executive Ryan McMahon, seemingly better and better data coming in our way, more positive data, our reaction to this data seems to be increasingly, increasingly negative or more lockdown-y. Um, what are we doing? Like the, the, the data that we keep getting doesn't seem to fit with the actions of our, at least our state government. And here we are, you know, 150 plus days past the 15 days of flattening the curve and it's destroyed. We've flattened every curve that there possibly is. And yet we're still law locked down. Yep. Uh, so I think this is another Fix des- it, ben. design flaw of human beings. Okay. We feel that we can and should control everything. So we have this illusion that we have so much control and, and we can dictate so many things that are just beyond our control. And it's this, we think it's so we, we continue to act on it. I mean, it's this, the studies are coming in more and more frequently now. It's being talked about more and more openly. The lockdowns did not stop the spread of this virus. Everywhere that lockdown saw no impact whatsoever. If anything, they saw a slight increase in cases after the lockdown. So... It, but it's now it's the answer is like, well, we so if you're inclined to say, well, cases are low because we're locking down so we can't lift the restrictions like I'm sorry, but you're not looking at the data because the data doesn't reflect that. That is the internal need to be able to control things that are outside of our control. This is a virus. A virus is going to do what a virus does. It's going to spread. We can control it to a minor extent. But we can't prevent it. We can't stop it any more than we can't stop people from dying. I, it's it's not in our ability. It's just part of what we have to deal with and accept is that every one of us who is walking this planet at present is going to die. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. You can't put it off forever. So as we try to exert more control over this, we're just doing more harm than good. We're doubling down on the stupid at every single turn. Like we have... Less than 1% spread rate. Great. But now you're too afraid to lighten up on the restrictions six months later? All right. Well, now let's talk about the child abuse rates, the suicide rates, the the people that are dying of heart attacks and strokes because they're not near anybody else to notice, hey, grandpa's having a stroke. The people in nursing homes who are dying from loneliness, they're just giving up because they haven't seen a family member or a loved one in six months. So at some point, we continue to lock people down. We continue to tell everybody that, you know, you're a hero if you wear a mask and you stay inside. You're asking people to do stuff that is bad for them, that has no discernible impact on the spread of the virus. You're not making anybody safer, healthier, or happier, but you feel like you're controlling it. And that illusion of control is so addicting, you can't let up. Now we're too far down the road. Yeah, listen, and I think, you know, some of this is 
to trying to validate their actions, right? So right. it's like they're they're gonna dig in. They're gonna you know we've been on this one side forever, uh, regardless of the data changing in any way. Um, obviously we've talked about how they just changed the, I don't know if moving the goalposts is right, but they just changed the target data that they start to promote each time, whether or not it's deaths or hospitalizations or ICUs or cases or whatever. Remember so when it was ventilators. Yeah. Right. So they pick a number that, or a, uh, some kind of area that people can focus on and then just change that area to focus on as the data changes to maintain the fear. So mm-hmm. at some point it's going to run out, um, I saw just recently, and I, you know, I, I don't know the context of the video, but it was uh, sent to me as uh, a woman without a mask in Spain, and oh, yeah. uh, the police were trying to arrest her, and then I watched a bunch of maskless uh, citizens come and rip her away from the police, so I was encouraged by Chanting that. Chanting liberty? Yes, they, right. They so ripped like, their masks off? Yeah, and they, they took her and they said, you know what, whatever. So I'm hoping that, listen, I don't want to see confrontations with law enforcement around the world like no. we see, we're seeing now with some of this stuff, but like... It should be a red flag to the people trying to enforce this that it's never going to be fully embraced by the masses and trying to enforce this kind of stuff, as we saw with even uh, here in the United States with uh, the whole Biden mask mandate, they've already walked that back like it's, you know, it's it's not a thing. So to try to make it a thing, I you know, I'm sure it didn't play well. Uh, and that's why they're walking it back. Of course they um, Listen, but do you know what's been? I, I'm sorry to cut ahead. you off. I just want to throw this in there. Do you know what's been revealed to me in in greater uh, substance than I ever really think I realized? How little the people in this country understand how our government actually functions and what the setup is, because the number of things people think the president can just snap his fingers and make happen, and the number of things that we think the federal government is supposed to do is mind boggling. When people talk about this, and you go. But that's not how it works. Well, it should be. But no, it it shouldn't because you hate the guy that has the power, but you want to give him that much power? Yeah, that's been my... What? You know, that's been... Some of my, you know, part of my political political philosophy is like, okay, you're you're giving the power to the person that you are in favor of now, but you realize that the party of unfavor is going to eventually take over at some point, and you're giving those people the same power. We're never going to be able to ensure that all of our candidates are going to act with complete morality right so like you try to that's in my philosophy we're trying to limit the power of those those people because we know they're not flawless and they're going to make mistakes and we want to limit the damage that they can do by and again that's why i would have as many laws as possible moved from the federal government down to the state government and then from the state government down to the local governments and make the risk and reward more you know personal Right. And make your vote count more matter on those things there. Will will some communities fail and make wrong mistakes? Absolutely. That's the whole point of it. We can see what to learn from some of these things, and some we're going to make better decisions. We can emulate those people. We can move forward in the way watching different governments act and react to people's requests, right? Some governments are going to ban certain things at right. a local level, and you can move away from those th- those places. So. Also, you should be learning. That's the thing is if New York has a different response than Florida, than Texas, than Idaho, than New Jersey, than California, there's more chances that somebody's going to get it right. And you have the capacity at that point to say, oh, hey, we got it wrong. We don't need to do this because obviously this data is showing us that it's wrong. Opening gyms, a great example. We're really nervous about opening gyms. Well, everywhere that's open gyms has not had a problem. So at some point we should have just said, all right, we're going to give it a run because if it goes wrong, we'll we'll close them. But all the evidence, all the science indicates that we're not going to have any issues with this, so we're going to do it. 
I think the problem is you have seven or eight states, of which ours is the leading one, who just will not learn anything. They will not change the strategy that we implemented back in March. Well, because they're on the mistake side and they don't want to admit it, right? right? So they're on the, hey, we did it wrong side and they don't want to admit it. So they're trying to hold their position as long as they possibly can. And listen, it's working because I still see people touting Governor Cuomo, thank you for all you've done for our state, you know, and they clearly are removed from the data that's actually occurring on the ground right. because they there's no way if they actually knew what was happening that they could cheer on a guy who led the league in deaths yeah it's it's not every position and almost nothing in politics is completely indefensible governor cuomo's record on covid 19 is indefensible there's there's anything that you're doing is an excuse it's not an actual defense it's I don't want to hear about we had it first. No, we didn't. I don't want to hear about how it's because of population density. No, it's not. The subways absolutely played a role. It's almost like somebody should have thought to sanitize them before May 6th. I don't know. Seems like that would have been kind of sciency to clean the thing where all the mass people are together and huddled next to each other. That probably would have made some sense. I think so. But we didn't do that. No, no, no. We waited six weeks to clean the subways. Can't figure out why New York got it so bad. Weird, right? And then there's other things that did, like, look, the only justification I can even offer at all for Cuomo and for New York State as a whole is it was early enough that we still thought ventilators were a good idea. And it was we did things that were wrong in hindsight that we have since stopped doing, but we didn't know it at the time. So there is some justification to that. It does not account for 34,000 people dying with COVID-19. It does not account for him still still not producing the numbers of how many people actually died in nursing homes. It does not account for the cover-up of the investigation that his own Department of Health did into themselves, citing faulty data that they knew was inaccurate compared to every other state, and using that as the justification for the reasons. The cover-up in this case is worse than the crime. You got it wrong. It was a pandemic. You're allowed to get stuff wrong. Fix it. Instead, you covered it up. And then you continued with these flawed policies for weeks on end that unquestionably resulted in people dying. And the, and the idea that you would defend this guy now and talk about what a, what a brave guy he was, I, I'm, I'm at a loss. I'm at an absolute loss for how you can defend this guy if you've looked at any data and compared it to anywhere else. The only way to do it is you have to be so willfully ignorant you do not want the data. You don't want to look at it. Right, and this is – so for the people calling for a, I don't know, a federal solution or, a, you know, a, a – a, some top-down instruction from the the president or the uh, federal government to try to handle this thing. What if Governor Cuomo's plan was the plan implemented across the country, right? Like, we would be in a completely different world, right? So the fact that our president at this point allowed the governors to kind of, hey, hey, here's some guidance. Here's what we know right now. Here's some guidance. We're going to allow you guys to make your own decisions. Was the right call? Of course. Like, it was, there's no way, and I can't imagine anybody who would, know on the ground which state and how they should react and, and manage this thing. So the people calling for a, some kind of, you know, federal, you know, dictate on how to handle this thing is completely backwards. And like I said, the, the way that it was handled is probably the right way it should have been handled, where these these states individually could make their own decisions. What should have been done is these governors also taken that idea and dispersed it amongst their own states and had these regions, and our state specifically, could have had these five regions open on their own accord 
you know, in accordance with what they felt was right on the ground. And that didn't happen. You know, it was kind of alluded that it was going to happen, but it never really happened. The state basically dictated everything and it's still dictating everything as we see with, you know, basically the, the shuttering of businesses with, with their um, enforcing of these, these rules and, and stripping right. businesses of their uh, liquor licenses and sending a health department and inspections to shut down these places. I mean, it's, the state is trying to hold on to these decisions that everybody is starting to realize were terrible, um, except for them. So, and, and we, I like to joke that the government is a lagging indicator while our state is basically the farthest lagging indicator that we could possibly have on this whole thing. Um, they, they're, they're, they're either completely blind or, or won't look at the data or they're purposely trying to muddy the waters with, and, and making themselves look good with some of these additional, you know, lockdown restrictions. Yeah, they're doing both. And listen, I, the one story, I shouldn't say the one, there's so many stories that haven't gotten enough coverage. But one of the stories that has not gotten enough and has not been brought up enough is the fact that New York State, the Liquor Authority, went after Arrowhead Golf Club. After Arrowhead Golf Club helped these this couple that wanted to get married file suit against New York because the state's rule on weddings capped at 50 people but if you went to the restaurant on a normal night, you could go 50% capacity. Which was 200 there in their place. Right. So it was, it's the difference between having 50 people at a, at a wedding or 100 people at a wedding when the night before, without a wedding, you could have had 100 men in compliance with the law. Obviously, that is arbitrary. There's no getting around that fact. So Arrowhead Golf Course helps this couple sue the state in order to say, look, we should be able to have 100 people at our wedding. And then New York State went in and they took their liquor license. They, they went in and, and like fined them. And uh, going in is a loose interpretation of the word because they didn't I, go. They didn't go at all. Right. They never made their presence known if they did go, but they said that Arrowhead's in violation and therefore their liquor license, I think it was suspended. Yeah. I mean, if you're okay with this, why? Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's just a, you know, the most recent version. He did the same thing with the dollar menus, right? Several of oh those God. dollar menu, you know, restaurants who made little, you know, sarcastic menus with little innuendos and, and directed towards our governor were shut down. They were sent in with health inspectors or stripped of their liquor license. I mean, there's clearly vindictive actions going on for people who have stood up to the governor or took up to the state um, for some of these actions. And it's not, it's not lost on anybody who's paying attention to it. Right. And it's a, the, what I want to say is if you're okay with Andrew Cuomo doing this, imagine if it was Donald Trump doing this to somebody else, you would be up in arms with your, I don't even know what to say on that. You'd just be up in arms. You would be beside yourself, and rightfully so. You would be indignant at how any politician could abuse their authority that blatantly, and why don't the people of his party care? And that's the same thing I'm looking at at Andrew Cuomo now and going, how can you be okay with this? This is vindictive. This is spiteful. And this is just such an abuse of power that he's not even bothering to hide it. I I mean, we're going to talk today to uh, Mr. Hammond from the, uh, the Health Institute, the Empire Center, about the for you those of you who don't know this is just another example of the fu coming from our governor's mansion in albany so they wanted to find out the actual number of people who left nursing homes and died in hospitals from or with covid-19 the state took the full 30 days that they're entitled to for a response and then sent them a message that said we can't find the records we're looking for them these Diligent, are all elected. diligently looking diligently looking for them the earliest that we will have them is november 5th but it may not even be that soon november they, 5th so Hang on a minute. Wait. If you were genuine and you did this and really came down to the math and I went to the governor and said, hey, uh, Mr. Cuomo, the earliest we can get these is November 5th. Any reasonable politician would go, 
you can't say that because it's right after the election and everybody will just think it's politics. So here's what I want you to do. Say we'll have it by the end of October, maybe middle of November, but we'll get it as soon as possible. Okay? Nope. They sent November them 5th. out and said November 5th. That's just spitting in your eye and telling you to do something about it. Literally, it's a, eh, screw you. What are you going to do? Yeah, November 5th, two days after the election, you can have this data that all I would really need to do is hit control F and type in two words and I could have all of it. You can have it November 5th. Yeah. Uh, well, you said what? Indefens- indefensible for sure. So, And this is everybody's just okay with it. And you can't figure out why New Yorkers are leaving, why New York City is having all of this real estate come out of the market all of a sudden. Like, it's a mystery why anybody would ever leave this state. What a surprise. Yeah. What a sad. Yeah. So let's let's talk Sorry. about our, our interview. Um, <clears throat> unless, excuse me, unless there's something else you want to touch on before we... Uh, so the only thing we got to cut on, give me two minutes, and then yep. we'll go into the interview, if that's all right, is oh, uh, yeah, the um, the testing that we've done. Now, yeah. over the week, or over last week, there were some reports that came out that said the CDC shifted the percentage of deaths of strictly from COVID versus comorbids, and it was 6% of all the deaths that have been reported. Is that important? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a factor, but it doesn't mean that only 6% of these people died because of COVID. I mean, right. it's, it's still, it's a hard number to parse out. Obviously it's not as high as what we originally thought, but it's also not 6%. So it's somewhere in the middle, but what kind of snuck in the back burner here and nobody was talking about was the fact that we just discovered that the CDC has been testing for this virus at a level that is just inaccurate. So I'm going to explain this the best I can, but I encourage you to go and do some research on your own and and look it up. So basically, when you're trying to find a virus under a microscope, you have to zoom in. You have to keep going up another iteration, another iteration to find the RNA of the virus, similar to zooming in on a computer screen. So you keep zooming in, you keep zooming in, and the more you have to zoom in, the smaller it is. That's basic understanding of zooming in and and all of this other stuff. Um, So... At 32 iterations, oh, forgive me if I'm using these words incorrectly, but just I think it's cycles. 32 cycles, take the basic understanding of it and go with it, So, and then go do some research. 32 cycles means the virus is contagious, means it's enough of the virus, it's enough RNA that you could be contagious to other people, and that's what most countries are testing to, is 32 cycles. In the United States, we've been going to 40 cycles. Now, that's not a small increase because every one of these is just an exponentially larger field, which means it's a much smaller portion of the virus that you're finding, and it's not at all contagious. Uh, There was a guy uh, on Twitter, this doctor, who worded it this way. It's not a small thing. It's the difference between one beer and a keg of beer when you're trying to figure out alcohol poisoning. It's something that if you know what you're looking at is an inexcusable error. There's no way it's an accident. There's no way that you don't realize you're testing and quarantining people who are not contagious. Yeah, they call, if they get to this highest cycle and they're finding it, they're basically calling artifacts. Like, they don't even know, like, it could be, it could have been there from other things. Right. Um, it's it hard been to a determine it. Right. SARS virus. It right. could have been a different vi- branch of the coronavirus from years ago. It's so little that it doesn't even matter. It, but it, they're counting it. Right, and those are getting counted. So, if you're not at least curious as to why, I don't understand you. Because I really want to know how in the world did this get by with all of these really smart scientists and all these really smart government officials that I'm supposed to just trust because I believe in science. How did they all miss it? How have all of them been okay with this testing knowing that they are bringing in so much more than reality? Knowing that they are inflating these numbers 
I don't know if it's a feeling of self-importance. I don't know if they're just erring on the side of caution to the point that is absurd, but something's wrong. That they should not have been able to get a, to do this and have nobody go. I mean, what do you mean you're doing 40 cycles? Doesn't make sense. Nobody, not one scientist at the CDC went. Hey guys, um, we made a mistake. This is too much. Not, nobody. And then you wonder why some people are a little hesitant to just go. Well, trust the doctors. Trust the scientists. Um, no, I mean, I'll trust them. I, I respect them, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't verify some of this stuff. And that doesn't mean we should shut out anybody who disagrees because otherwise we wouldn't have found this out. Yeah. So I, if you're not, this is what I mean about testing for football and college sports and everything else. If we start testing properly, our 1%, how low is it in reality? Right. How low, how many, how f- much fewer tests? If you're talking about the difference between a keg and a beer, if you're talking about that different and we're testing everybody into that one beer category instead of the keg, how many people got into this that shouldn't have been on this? Not yep. that they never had the virus, but that we don't know. They, they apparently had something similar at one point, and yet we're counting them and making public policy. We're, we're shuttering right, the economy. Right, and we're that's, that's the main main caveat right is we're, we're using this info to to dictate how people are living their lives right um and if the data is whether or not you know just ignorant and not knowing that the cycles you know are going to give you a a, a possibility of, of basically false positives or is it just hey we're gonna try to you know I don't know if this is ignorance as well, but try to make sure that we're we're capturing as much as we possibly can to make sure we're saving everybody. Either way, they're again they're they're using this info, which is distorted at best, to control people's lives. And control is the right word because they're 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 directing their actual actions in life. And I think people are getting past the tipping point where you know it's the people who have been on the fence are kind of like on. I don't know, team reality at this point and have kind of moved forward away from team apocalypse and are like, okay, Hey, maybe this isn't what we all thought it was. And the, again, I, I, I don't understand the disconnect between the reporting of the data in a negative light when the data seems to be becoming more and more positive. And that's, you know, there's a disconnect, right? So we're using faulty tests to find more of the virus than is out there to claim more people are sick than actually are so that we can infringe lockdowns that don't actually have any benefit and take away people's livelihoods at no benefit to them while ignoring entirely that all of these other negative consequences of suicides, drug overdose, addictions are increasing, um, heart attacks, strokes, all this other stuff people are dying from more. We ignore all that. Because we're focused on the shutdowns and the benefits that there really aren't any, not that are palatable or not that are statistically relevant, all based on faulty data. And at some point, I've, you have to ask the question of, all right, I'm, I'm all for believe the science and trust the doctors. At what point do we ask the question? At what point am I okay to say, am I not a conspiracy theorist for going, wait a minute, how? How did this happen? How did we get to this point? Because this should have never happened. And if you're going to have my trust so blindly, you can't get something this easy wrong. You can't. It, it's just, it defies logic. George, George Orwell is spinning in his grave. Oh, my God. I mean, you talk about just feeling like you wasted your masterpiece. Like, I, <laughs> you wrote it all out there, and everybody yeah. could have read it, and we all yeah. can't. We just he can't. Couldn't, he he could, I don't even out. think he could have wrote this one. So No, this has been a different world all the way around. And I, again, I... 
I don't want to come across as like a conspiracy theorist and don't trust the doctors. Do. But the doctors have a certain level of responsibility. They can't get something this wrong. And when they do, if you're not talking about it because you know it's damning to your point, you are 100% part of the problem. You should be telling people about this. We should be talking about this. And we should be holding somebody accountable to go, hey, guys, uh, this one seems kind of easy. Yeah. What else did you screw up? Yeah. And this is why you don't ever ask an infectious disease doctor to give you any sort of public policy recommendations because the answer is always insanely over the top and completely unrealistic. And yet yeah. we're doing it. Six months in and we're still doing it, Sean. We are. Unfortunately, we are living it. Sorry. Um, okay. I had to get our, it off my chest. Our guest interview, um, I was very excited to, uh, to talk to Mr. Hammond, Bill Hammond. He is the uh, director of health policy for the Empire Center. Um, we actually talked to him on Friday, so if there's some kind of uh, weird today, tomorrow, yesterday, whatever, uh, just realize that the video or the uh, recording or the interview is being recorded on Friday. Um, but we're going to play that now. Uh, we mostly primarily focus on nursing homes um, in New York State. Uh, we do talk about some of the other um, health issues that are, you know, coming with the, the, the lockdowns and the measures that we have here, too, as well. But um Hopefully that will uh, give you an idea of where we stand with some of the, Ben mentioned the uh, freedom of information request that, that Mr. Hammond filed uh, for basically trying to ascertain the actual number of, of nursing home deaths. We definitely touch on that. Um, ben, next week we get the U.S. Open. Uh, before I go into this real quick, uh, we're going to have uh, kind of a U.S. Open golf special next uh, Monday for the folks. So anybody who's uh, into uh, golf, U.S. Open, uh, we got a couple local golf uh, um professionals who are going to kind of give their insight uh dan mccarthy who is a uh, syracuse guy lemoyne grad and went to um uh, played through the corn ferry tour and qualified for the u.s open so he's gonna gonna give us uh, uh, a breakdown of what's going into that and jim roy uh former pga professional is going to kind of talk about life on the tour he's caddying for his son on the corn ferry tour uh so we're going to kind of touch base on all things golf next monday uh ben anything you'd like to leave the folks with before we head to the interview uh just Give it a listen. This guy is not a anti-Cuomo, pro-Trump. He's, I mean, he's pretty much for lockdowns. He's, he's on the team of let's be safe on this. He's genuinely just trying to figure out what happened with the nursing home. So yeah. give it a listen. He's got some good insights. And again, we'll see you all next Monday, and uh, we'll see you for episode 15 then. And right now we're Bill Hammond. I want to welcome to the show a man who has spent over 30 years in newspaper journalism, including times at the, at the New York Sun, the Daily Gazette of Schenectady, the post-star of Glen Falls. His work also has appeared in Politico New York, the New York Post, City and State, the Albany Times Union, the Buffalo News, and he has most recently served on the editorial board of the New York Daily News. He is now the senior fellow for health policy at the Empire Center. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Hammond. Mr. Hammond, welcome to the show. Thank you for giving us some of your time. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's jump right into your most recent uh, piece here where you have and the Empire Center filed a freedom of information request with the New York State about trying to access um, data on nursing homes. Can you tell us what you what data you were looking for, why you were looking for it, and the state's response to your request? Well, what I was looking for was the what I call the full count of um, deaths that happened among nursing home residents. Um, from coronavirus. The state's been reporting numbers, but 
what they're reporting only includes the residents who died within the four walls of their facility if they were moved to a hospital uh, towards the end of their lives that didn't uh, that didn't show up in the state's data um, they've been doing it this way since early may they've never really given a good explanation for it um, the evidence indicates that it's a substantial number of people. It's not. It's not like a, a small difference. It's probably the, the state's saying there are 6,500 uh, nursing home residents have passed away, and the true total is probably thousands higher. Um, this uh, this becomes uh, important when you're trying to make comparisons, as, as we all have been doing, um, between New York and other states or between nursing homes to understand which homes um, suffered the worst from the coronavirus and which homes um, did a better job of, of keeping it out and managing it. Um, but also, I think there's just a... Uh, sense that we want to have the true facts about the situation and the state's been only giving us partial facts um, and this came up at a hearing uh, a legislative hearing the health commissioner was testifying and Howard Zucker is his name and a lot of the members of the legislature from both parties were asking him about this and saying um, you know what is the true number why, why are you giving it when are you going to put it out and he wasn't giving, in my mind, very satisfactory answers, and the legislators weren't satisfied. And so, after watching that performance, I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to try a Freedom of Information request." Uh, it's so that's that's what started this whole this whole thing going. The the um, they sent me a letter. It arrived Monday. Um, which was the end of a, uh, a period of time when they were obliged to take some kind of action on my request. And what they said was, we're not able to give you this information yet. Um, we're, uh, a diligent search for the records is ongoing. Uh, we hope to get it to you by November 5th, but we can't even promise that. Seems, seems and like what struck what struck me about it is is that the there couldn't possibly be any need for a diligent search because everyone knows exactly where this data is. It's the the state has a has a system for collecting data from nursing homes. It's been collecting the data that I want all along, and they've just been holding it back. And and they've been partially they've been releasing part of the data from this system, but not the other part. It's in the same system. It's not a mystery where the data is. Yeah, and so to piggyback on that, so the diligent efforts of their looking for these documents, did they look for these documents when they were doing their own self-investigation? I mean, it seems as though this information would have been very relevant to their own investigation. It must have been available to them at this point, and I think maybe to your point, I don't understand why it can't be available today if it was available to them when they were doing their own internal investigation. Uh, does that seem... So you're talking to, you're talking about the report. It was a a, a kind of quasi academic style report that they put out. Correct. I forget when that came out. It was a month or more ago. I think it was in the beginning of July. I feel like I remember the <clears throat> beginning. Back. Yeah, early July. That's right. 
Um, so wouldn't that information that we're that looking was, for be pertinent to their investigation? This, oh, it absolutely would have been. And, and the thing is, that investigation, it was supposed to be an exploration of, of what happened with coronavirus in nursing homes. I think the, the subtext of it was to, in their mind, prove that the March 25th order, uh, which we can get into, they were trying to prove that, that their own policies had not caused coronavirus to get into nursing homes and that it had been brought in by staff and visitors. I think that's actually, I think that's true. I think when it first got into the nursing homes, it was because it was all over the place in the community. The staff were in the community, visitors were in the community, and inevitably they were going to have it on them when they, when, or they were going to be sick with it when they came and not, not necessarily know they had it. They were going to go into the homes, and the patients were going to pick it up, and they're extremely vulnerable. I think that's, I think that's probably at least where it started. <clears throat> Excuse me. But in order to, so I should probably explain with this March twenty fifth order. Sure. It it was it was right when the the state was anticipating this massive wave of patients going to hospitals. And they didn't think they were going to have enough room for those patients. In fact, they thought they were going to be, you know, they had about 50,000 beds in hospitals total, and they were thinking they might get 100,000 patients all at once. So that was a pretty, that was like a nightmare scenario, and they were a little bit panicked about it, and they were trying to create as much space in hospitals as they could. And, and so you had a set of patients who were nursing home residents who had, who had come down with coronavirus and now were stable. They'd basically gotten over it. And, but they couldn't go back to the nursing homes, or at least some nursing homes were, were resisting because they didn't want to have a, someone who was coronavirus positive come into their facility. And the state said, no, you, can, you can't do that. You have to, you can't discriminate against somebody based on their coronavirus status. And in fact, you can't even check whether they have coronavirus before admitting them. You have to just admit them. Um, some nursing homes really didn't like that, and they put up a protest, but the policy stayed in force for several weeks, and thousands of patients were moved into nursing homes who were either known to be coronavirus positive or who were suspected. And this became a huge kind of uh, scandal, or, or at least in some, some people were, were saying that that was that was the main reason why so many nursing home patients died. I don't think it was the main reason, but the whole point of this report that the health department was doing was to basically dismiss, to say the March 25th order had nothing to do with the, with the toll in nursing homes. And the way they tried to demonstrate that was by looking at the curve of when the deaths happened. And they said the deaths peaked, in mid-April, um, the March 25th order, uh, I'm sorry, the deaths peaked in early April. It's like April 7th or 8th. And, and the March 25th order was too late to explain, given how long it takes to get sick and then get sick enough and then die. They, didn't, they, they were arguing it just wasn't plausible that that March 25th order would explain when the deaths peaked. Well, here's the thing. When they were charting the curve of deaths, they were only using their own partial count. Uh, that was deaths 
specifically within the facilities, they weren't including the many people who were moved to hospitals when they got sick. And so it may be that that wouldn't change the timing. It may be that, you know, even if you included all those people, peak date would be the same exact day but you don't know that unless you do the you know you check and maybe they did check they just didn't you know they didn't they didn't want to put out that number they're being they're being very um shy about releasing that number i had kind of expected when I read the report, one of the first things I did was I said, Hey, did they, did they give us the actual number of deaths? And when I saw that they didn't, I said, okay, this is, this is not a a serious academic study. It's a, it's a political document. And so speaking of that order, the department of justice has taken up issue with this uh, order through a couple of the States who had similar orders in place. Um, They are going to uh, investigate this uh, it seems as though the investigation is not going to touch on the private facilities, only the state-run facilities. I think I got that correct. And it seems as though there's this this, this problem or this uh, nursing home uh, issue was was affected in both, right? It wasn't just state facilities. It was the private and the state facilities. Yeah, so I have to say I feel like that investigation is, is a political situation as well. I think this whole um, thing is going to become a little political a lot for a, next, a month yeah, or so. Yeah, I mean, it's – I mean – you know, you have a situation where, I mean, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of deaths uh, from the coronavirus pandemic lately. In this case, you're talking about a subset of, you know, 6,000 and probably many more thousands of, of New Yorkers. They've died. And all of these public officials are expressing concern about that and, 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 and acting as if they want to get to the bottom of it. And then they're just very clearly not getting to the bottom of it. So with the DOJ, they sent letters to the governors of four states, New York, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and forgetting the fourth one. Yeah. New Jersey. The, um, all the implication in the letter is that those states They specifically said they were, they cited the March 25th order in New York and they kind of suggested that the other three states had similar policies. The thing is there were, there were more than just those four states that had policies like that. I don't have a definitive list. Um, uh, Cuomo says it's 14. I don't, I don't take his, his number at face value, but it wasn't so. This that didn't seem to be the complete list of states that, if you were going to investigate that situation, you might have gone for more states. And so the other thing is that, as you say, they 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 only asked for data from state or local government owned nursing homes. Well, that's a really short list. We have, I think, it's six hundred thirteen nursing homes and only thirty are either state or locally owned, uh, local government owned. And they're not even like this pandemic was super concentrated in the New York city area. These government owned facilities are not super concentrated in the New York city area. They're kind of a disproportionate number of them are upstate. And, and as a result, and, and also um, some of them had high death tolls even based on the limited information we have. 
but half of them have reported zero deaths. So they weren't especially hard hit by the pandemic. They're not a representative sample. It's a very tiny sample. And so I don't think you're going to get much. Uh, you're not going to be able to really understand anything that happened, especially related to that March 25th order based on this tiny sample. And so do so do we need an independent investigation here? I know that we talked a little bit about the uh, the Senate hearings here, and we had some Democrat uh, senators calling for just that. Uh, is that a possibility? Do, I mean, I, I think there's some clamor for it, but is there enough traction to actually get it done? Do you think there will ever be an independent investigation of this? I mean, I hope so. I, I The question is how you structure and what, what independent means. Normally... People throw that word around a lot without explaining their terms. The there's a bill in um, sponsored. It has actually bipartisan sponsorship. Jim Tedisco of Schenectady, or uh, actually lives in Saratoga now, and Ron Kim of Queens. They um, their their approach would be to have the Senate and the Assembly and the governor and the attorney general appoint representatives to a commission. The thing is that, that, I mean, that gives them, it becomes independent of just the governor, right? It's, he wouldn't be able to control it, but his allies or his sometime allies, the Senate leader and the assembly leader and the attorney general, if they wanted to, would be able to give him cover. And so it's it's not independent of the political establishment. It's it's a it's a, it's an organ of the political establishment. Um, sometimes in a situation like this, you look to the federal government, like a, a U.S. attorney or you know the Health and Human Services Department or something like that. Um, but I don't. I don't know that there's any reason to think there was criminal behavior here. So a U.S. attorney wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. You have to have some evidence of a crime rather than just a, a tragic mistake or a, a bad policy decision. Um, the, the Justice Department is getting involved under a civil statute um, relating to um, institutions where uh, where people are, are – uh, they call them congregate facilities or institutionalized people. They include the law covers prisons as well as nursing homes and other facilities. So they're they're doing a civil investigation, but here again, they don't seem to be doing it in a. They have political interests here too. First of all, they have a political interest in um, uh, deflecting criticism from the Trump administration. The, the just Justice Department and the Attorney General are have been uh, perceived as being allies of the president, and they're acting that way. They also have potentially a political interest in embarrassing Democratic governors during the campaign season. And so, I mean, it's independent in the sense that it's independent of the state political system, but it's not independent of the larger political system. So my idea, and I, I floated this in an op-ed, is, is the non-governmental organizations in New York State, and I'm thinking of um, universities, 
research organizations, um, civic groups should on their own without any um, sponsorship from the state should on their own organize a commission and bring in experts and write a, you know, do a, do a serious nonpartisan, nonpolitical um, analysis and, and present a report to the public. There, there are serious challenges to that, but I, I think that that would be truly independent. And also I think it would really, it has the potential to be really important because we have just gone through the worst national natural disaster in New York state history. Um, it's a lot of the, there were breakdowns in our public health system that, I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around and I don't even actually think the point of this investigation would be to determine, would be to allocate blame. The point would be to figure out what we could do better next time. Sure. We need that plan. And right now, nobody in government is focused on that. In fact, what we just talked about, the March 25th issue, that's one small thing that needs to be figured out. But I would argue the much bigger issues that need to be figured out happened in January and February when this disease, it turns out this disease was in New York and we just didn't know it. And how, how does it get to that point where this really dangerous pathogen is spreading among our citizens and we, I mean, it's partly because there wasn't testing, but was there no other way to detect the fact that the virus had arrived and, and should we have been taking precautions earlier? Um, those are the kind of things we need to figure out. Uh, and, uh, and the, the reason I think it's worth doing is that um, there are examples around the world of countries that, were able to manage the virus. They were hit with it very early, and they were able to keep it under control to the point where it, it, it did not become a major cause of death. Um, and, and we should be trying to emulate that. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Mr. Hammond. Uh, bringing it back to New York State, uh, the death count in New York State of deaths with COVID is about 34,000 people right now. I know your institute did a, uh, a report a while back that said nursing home vacancies, I believe the number was about 13,000 above normal vacancies. Here's what I'm trying to make sense of, and I'm hoping you can help me out. National average of nursing home deaths, the total deaths, it's about 43%, give or take. So that would put us at 16,000 out of our 34,000 death count using rough numbers. If it's not the nursing homes, like if, that, if it's not that big of a discrepancy, how is New York State's numbers this bad? Where did we lose people at this high of a, a mortality rate compared to everywhere else? I mean, I don't... That's a mystery I've been wondering about for, for a few months because when it did hit, it hit very hard and very fast. Um, our, I, if you remember when we first started getting freaked out, when we first started seeing people turning up in hospitals, at that time Italy was 
having, you know, a horrific situation. And I remember comparing our, our curve, our, you know, the, the rate of increase of deaths that we were seeing to Italy's and ours was worse and it continued to be worse. And, uh, and so what were the, what were the conditions that caused us to have this just really virulent uh, pandemic? I mean, there are people all along have been trying to point to, well, maybe it was the subways. The subways helped spread it. It's plausible. There's just the fact of urban density, people living in crowded apartments and walking in crowded streets and riding elevators. Those are all opportunities for the virus to spread. Um, Uh, the other thing that the governor keeps bringing up is that it's also a center for tourism. And so you have a lot, you, and this is true, you do have a lot of people on a daily basis flowing into this crowded city and getting on the subways and riding in the elevators. And so they could be bringing a virus from elsewhere. In this case, it turned out it, it apparently arrived here from Europe. So those are all... Um, those all make a lot of sense epidemiologically, but you can find other big, denser cities with subways and, and elevators and tourists, and and they they didn't have our situation. I th- that's like that's what I think this investigation, whoever does it, should try to figure that out, um, um, because that's what we have to fix. Whatever it was, whatever whatever that issue the factor was that made us so vulnerable it's something i've been hearing the same things and i i'm glad i'm not the only one confused by it of new york city is population dense until you compare it internationally then it doesn't crack the top 50 of the most densely populated cities in the world tourism it's top 10 but it's not number one so all of these justifications and reasons they make sense until you compare to other places and I'm trying as hard as I can to figure out what made New York's results. It wasn't a little bit worse than most of the other states. It was exponentially worse results. And we didn't get it first. We didn't have it of, of any of these other things that, you're, that you want to fall back on. And I, I guess I'm still, and it sounds like you are too, how did we get here? We, even if you don't want to assign blame to Andrew Cuomo and the executive order, which I think it bears some responsibility, but it doesn't account for all of it. What in the world happened here, and how did we get this poor of results? Is it an issue with reporting? Is it an issue with counting? Are the ventilators at play? Is there anything else that we might be missing? Well, I mean, there, we weren't the first state, and it, and it, it kind of grates on my nerves when people say that. But right. we were we we were the first we were the first state to get hit really hard. I mean, yes. Louisiana was kind of in there too, but so, and as we've discussed, we were flying blind. Um, I remember there was a press conference between the governor and the mayor in New York City, uh, very early March, and it was right after the first case had been detected and tested positive. And they had a press conference, and they were the whole tone of it was: "There's nothing to worry about. We have the best healthcare system in the world. Everything's going to be fine. Go about your lives." And in retrospect, 
At the moment they were saying that, there were probably over 10,000 infections in New York State. Um, there were certainly, it was certainly spreading in the community. And, and so already the healthcare system was showing that it wasn't the best healthcare system in the world, at least the public health system, because it had missed that. Right. And that, that alone, probably the fact that we were blissfully unaware and not taking precautions when it had already gotten that bad may be one of the big reasons why it hit us so hard. Uh, and that was kind of a red flag to the rest of the country. And the rest of the country, even if states weren't ordering people to stay home, people started staying home because they, oh, they were like, this is real. It's here. It's spreading. Um, and that probably helped tamp it down in other other cities that could have been in bigger trouble. Another thing, and this is kind of a, I don't want this to sound, um, I don't want to be um, critical of the healthcare workers who put their lives on the line and, and performed heroically. But I think one issue that we need to explore is infection control in our healthcare system. There, um, there are, and, 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 and I, I don't have anything to document this, but I, but I suspect that, I mean, I saw anecdotal reports of uh, hospitals in New York City where the staff were told when people come into the emergency room, you shouldn't be wearing a mask because that'll intimidate them. And if, if, that, if, if you're not maximally concerned about controlling infections in a healthcare facility, the healthcare facility can be a spreader. Sure. Somebody who comes in with a broken arm can walk out with coronavirus if you're not controlling the infection. And the same thing ha uh, can happen in a nursing home. And, um, and then combine that, combine that kind of um, lack of vigilance that I think was common with what became critical shortages of PPE. So even if you wanted to practice infection control, you didn't have the stuff you needed. Um, now that that was true everywhere, but it be, it was more of an issue in New York because we had so many cases and hospitals were just swamped with patients, and so it kind of it it, it may be that what happened was we got to a tipping point where we never really broke the healthcare system. It always had beds and respirators. We never ran out, but it was strained to the point where it wasn't. They weren't able to maintain the standard of infection control that you should and that caused it to just spread exponentially uh if i could shift focus a little bit uh we obviously in the state had some of the more restrictive shutdowns and uh economics shutdown now, obviously we talk about that in terms of we had to control the spread. Just to go a little bit off topic, outside of the spread, let, 
I know that suicides were up, overdoses were up, domestic violence, child abuse. What are the other health effects that we saw? I heard I saw reports about deaths from cancers and all these other things started increasing when we did this because people were afraid to go to hospitals. Do you have any quantitative data on what what were the costs of all of our shutdowns, specifically to our state? Oh, uh, that's really hard to say. Um, right. Sorry. The no, but I mean, there are there is this this data set that's that's routinely collected by the state and the CDC called all causes deaths. It's ba- it's basically the the national death toll on a routine basis is collected on a week every week, um, and it shows that. This became relevant early in the pandemic when people were kind of skeptical: Is this the flu? Is it really? Is it really that dangerous? And you could see that the death toll in New York, just the total death toll from all causes, spiked way, way higher than usual. And in fact, if you look at that number, it's higher than anybody's number for the coronavirus death toll. So obviously, so either there's more coronavirus deaths than we know about, or deaths from other causes spike too. Um, on, and then at the same time, deaths from like auto accidents probably went down. So there were, it was like a mix of, of factors going on. I, I mean, I don't doubt that there was these uh, deaths of despair. You know, people are just maybe they're more suicidal or they're taking more drugs or they're cut off from people who might notice that they're having a stroke and, and get them to an emergency room or they're afraid to go to the emergency room because they think they're going to get sick. Uh, so there, there's probably some of that, but at the same time, um, the restrictions were also saving lives, right? Because they were, had we not, stayed home, there would have been that many more people who died from coronavirus. And it's, I mean, it's impossible to quantify that because it's, it's a, it's a scenario that didn't happen, but, um, and and there were probably parts of the state where the restrictions were more than we needed. And I remember very early on in this, there were epidemiologists who were saying, if you're, if you're, public health response doesn't feel like an overreaction you're not doing it right that that's that is actually the, the ideal outcome is that what you did was an overreaction because it means that the the pandemic didn't get as bad as people feared and that's because you took precautions um now that's that's not to say that you know you could probably find communities in northern new york where you know, they've had virtually no infections and no deaths, and yet their businesses are suffering. That's undoubtedly the case. And a lot of our uh, restrictions were really geared to what was going on in New York City. And to this day, New York City is under restrictions that don't apply upstate. Um, and, they're, and they're not happy about it. <laughs> the restaurants down there aren't happy about it. Uh yeah, so I mean, was were the restrictions perfectly calibrated to the situation? Obviously not. I don't think they ever could have been. I don't. I don't really want to fault anybody for overreacting on that. 
Uh, one more for me, and then I'll kick it back to Sean. Uh, a few weeks ago, Dr. Fauci came out and, and praised New York State's response as, I think the exact quote was, the model to follow. Now, I'm no scientist, I'm no medical professional, but I, I'm looking at data, I'm looking at economic costs, I'm looking at mortality rates, and I'm having a hard time drawing that same conclusion. Am I crazy, or is there some validity to this? You have obviously more of an expertise here. I'd like to ask you about that. Well, I took that, when he said that, I took that to be referring to the reaction to the pandemic rather than the preparations for it. So we just talked about how we were caught sleeping. I don't think he was endorsing that part of it. I think what he meant was the the, the stuff you just talked about, the, the restrictions on business, the restrictions on uh, you know telling people to stay home, telling people to wear masks and social distance. That stuff, we, we, we weren't the first to put it in, but we were one of the first. And we went farther with it than a lot of places in the U.S. anyway. I don't think there, there were countries that went much farther than we did. And if, okay, so here's, here's what, and, and those things ended up working. Um, and here's, here's something that I, I, I took, the, I took the death curve and I rolled it back 20, 21 or 22 days, which is, which is like the average time from infection to death. If you're going to die, that's how long it takes mm-hmm. on average. And I rolled it back. And so our deaths peaked in mid-April. If you roll that back 21 days, it's late March. So, and our, our restrictions kicked in around March, I think it was March 22nd. It was just before, uh, it, it, it was right around the time of that March 25th order. When, when those restrictions kicked in, that's when our infection started coming down. It didn't feel like that. Because we didn't, first of all, we didn't know how many people were infected at the time because we didn't have any testing. And also because the hospitals were filling up for weeks and people were dying for weeks. But that was all, it wasn't all, but our infections had peaked in mid-March. And the restrictions marked kind of a turning point where they stopped going up and started going down. That's, it's, it's all very rough calculations on my part, but it didn't feel that way. There's this disconnect between perception and what's actually going on. Because the testing was so bad, we, we, we weren't testing enough people to know how widespread the infections were. We found out when the deaths happened in mid-April, and that's when we were experiencing it. We were experiencing the worst of the pandemic weeks after the restrictions went in, and it it didn't feel like anything was getting better. That's built into the delay between getting sick and dying. And and so I I mean when I when I did that analysis it was just kind of a thought experiment what happens if you back everything up 21 days I was surprised it it, it landed right around the time that the mat the the, the, the lockdown was um, put into effect so hang on Sean I'm sorry uh, did you happen to see the piece in the Wall Street Journal that that 
show that studied when the economic or when the personal movement started slowing down, and they did a, a statistical analysis of every state and the country as a whole, and it showed no correlation between shuts down, shutdowns and drops in the virus spread. I don't know if you saw that, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, I'm, I, I, I didn't see it, so I, I can't really comment. Sorry, no, it, it just it, you're saying that that literally I read that. I mean, there's one, one thing I would say is we, when the shutdowns were being ordered, the our our understanding of the virus was still pretty limited, and these are all new interventions. The U.S. has not, in modern history, attempted to control. Uh, a, a pandemic with this type of measure. Um, so they they were they were doing things that they thought would help, and they were probably like they were throwing everything they had at it. Let's try masks. Let's try closing down. Let's try. I mean, in principle, if you stay inside and you don't have any interactions with people, a virus can't spread. So that that was kind of. But now we know. Okay. Um, Masks seem to work more than other interventions. And, you know, maybe you don't have to worry about beaches. And so, like, we've got a sophisticated understanding. And if we were doing it all over again, the, the, the shutdown we would do would look, would look a lot different. Uh, and let's, let's wrap this up by bringing it back to nursing homes. Do I know you, we had the, the, the study of the, the you know, the, the less nursing home residents than we have, what, 13,000 less. But it, do you have a number? Like, do you have, do you have a, I mean, obviously a, a rough estimate number? Like, is there something out there where you think that's a, there's a range where we're between? It's, if it's not 6,600, uh, do, you, do, you, do you fathom a guess? I mean, I, I did fathom a guess at one point based on the, the CDC is, is here's another kind of weird thing. The CDC started counting nursing home deaths in mid-May, and they told homes, if you want to give us your retroactive numbers back to the beginning of the pandemic, you can, but you don't have to. And so the result is you have this data set that's kind of a mess because some homes did and most homes didn't, and and you don't know what to make of it. However, they've been reporting on a weekly basis ever since mid May, And so you have the CDC number, which includes the people who went to hospitals, and you can line it up with the state's numbers since mid-May, which don't include. And you can see that about 40 pa- 40% of patients during that period were dying in hospitals instead of in the in the nursing homes. And if you extrapolate from that, that would imply that the total death toll in hospital in nursing homes would be closer to 10, 11, 12,000. Uh, but that's a, a very rough estimate. Sure. Um it, the you mentioned the vacancy data. We normally have a hundred thousand nursing home residents, and we're down right now about eighty-seven thousand, roughly speaking. So there's thirteen thousand residents that are missing, but some of that is people are just not checking into nursing homes, and so the, the normal normal turnover isn't happening. Okay, and so. Anything did we miss? Uh, anything you want to touch base on that we didn't talk about or anything you want to expand on more that we did talk about? I mean, I just want to... I'm, I'm 
putting effort into um, into getting the numbers from the nursing homes because I think it's important. Uh, I do think it's worth exploring that March 25th memo further to, if only just to know whether we should ever do it again. I actually, I, I, I think the answer is no. But um, we want to get that definitively on the record because technically right now that March 25th order is still in effect. And we have this, this report that purports to say that it, ha it had no significant negative consequences, which I don't think is true. So, so I, I feel like we need to correct the record on that. All that said, I think that decision, even if you think it was a mistake, it's not the worst mistake. It's probably not in the top 25 worst mistakes. The, the, the worst mistake, worst mistakes happened in January and February when we underestimated the threat and we didn't have the right tools to, um, to, to detect what was going on and to respond to it. And, and I call those mistakes, they're, they're mistakes in hindsight, which is 2020, right? And, um, but those, those are the things we need to fix if we can. And so I, I hope we don't focus too much on what I think of as downstream issues. The, if, if we had properly and more effectively controlled the pandemic in the first place, we never would have had the issue of hospitals being overwhelmed. We never would have had the March 25th order and we wouldn't be talking about that. If, if we need to, Prevention is the thing we should be um, putting our energy into. Uh, that's 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 my hobby horse these days. All right, Mr. Hammond, I'm going to leave it there with you. I appreciate your time. I thank you for your insight and uh, keep up the good work. And uh, I'll be paying attention to it to make sure that we can get that number eventually. Again, I thank you for your time. It's been fun. Thank Thanks. you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.